This is a Rooster Teeth production. August 23, 2005. TANS 204, a Boeing 737 with 98 people on board, is on approach to Pucallpa Airport in Peru, and things are not going well. The crew is attempting an emergency landing amid rapidly changing Amazonian weather. The weather has significantly worsened since their takeoff from Lima just 40 minutes earlier. Thunderstorms have rapidly formed and a hail core has begun pelting the plane just a few miles from the airport. The captain takes control of the plane, instructing the first officer to focus on looking outside to find the airport. Suddenly, alarms begin sounding, alerting the crew of imminent impact with the ground. The plane slams into the jungle, leaving a mile-long scar of debris. Of the 98 passengers and crew on board, 40 people lose their lives, including all three pilots. Why did the experienced crew decide to fly through a severe storm on a visual approach? Could they have headed to an alternate landing site? Was their positioning equipment functional? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. It's Gus and Chris. Hello, Chris. Hello. We're back with uh, more incidents, more accidents to talk about. <laughs> we got an email from a listener, and I've tried to be better about this, you know, explaining that it, it's just a bad habit of mine to say incidents a lot of times, like explaining that there is definitely a very clear difference between incidents and accidents and uh, that I, I need to do. I, I, I should be more on top of that. This was definitely an accident. How would you differentiate the two? So the, the big thing is, did people get hurt? or die. Mm. So an accident is an occurrence associated, you know, with the operation of an aircraft that takes place anytime a person boards with the intention of flight until all persons have disembarked. When a person is fatally or seriously injured, the aircraft sustains significant damage or structural failure, or the aircraft goes missing or becomes completely inaccessible. So very specific definition. Anything else is an incident. Like okay, that's, that's an, accident. an accident. Yeah. An incident might be a near miss or anything else. Other than that. So there are there are very specific definitions here, and I, I just need to be better about that. Okay. Well, if you'd like to email and complain or send a compliment, <laughs> you can do that too. Blackboxdownpod at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. Yeah. Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, Facebook. We got them all. Yeah. Well, not all. Almost all. And also, we just recently had a premium episode come out for uh, people who are our first class supporters of the show. Yeah. Uh, if you support uh, on whatever podcast platform or through Rooster Teeth First, uh, we, we we make a supplemental, some bonus content you can enjoy. You also get the episodes early and ad-free. Yeah. And you can find out about that at blackboxdownpod.com. Yeah. It's only $2.99 a month. It's cheaper than Wi-Fi on a plane. Oh, yeah, it is. See, I tried try, try to associate it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How often do you buy the Wi-Fi on the plane? Sorry, that's a tangent. It's pretty often, actually. It's not great. I've, I, this is totally not related to this podcast, but I've been playing a lot of um, Marvel Snap on my phone, and oh. I bought Wi-Fi on a flight <laughs> recently so I could play Marvel Snap on a plane to pass the time. It was only, well, the Wi-Fi was eight bucks, so I thought it was fine. I also, mm. you know, just use the internet. Whatever. Okay, you can be on the spot, Chris. I feel like I'm, I'm being judged. Uh, anyway, we're not here to talk about playing Wi-Fi. We're here to talk about TANS 204. Wait, we should, maybe we should do a supplemental episode about how Wi-Fi killed phones on the plane. Maybe, whatever. That's a different mm. topic. You got me thinking here. So TANS was a Peruvian airline. It stood for Transportes Aéreos Nacionales de Selva, based out of Lima. It was also known as Grupo Aéreo de Transporte 42. Uh, you don't have to know any of that. I just wanted to show off my Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> it was established in 1963 as an arm of the Peruvian Air Force, 
It was based at the remote city of Iquitos, which was inaccessible by road, and was tasked with providing scheduled airline flights as well as search and rescue and medevac needs. So this is a weird airline because it started off kind of as a branch of the military. (laughs) It operated as a branch of the military. Like I said, it was established in 1963. They didn't get their official recognition to be an airline until 1999. So they operated for like 36 years as a branch of the military. Huh. So kind of a a weird backwards way to make an airline, but that's how TANS came to be. Yeah, it was in 1999 that it it was no longer part of the Air Force and then began operating as a typical uh, airline in uh, November of 1999. A lot of pilots started out in the military. Why not a lot of airlines? (laughs) Well, you're going to find out why. (laughs) Uh (laughs) (laughs) Uh-oh. Before we get into the meat of it, because I think that's an interesting question you just asked. When pilots fly for the military, you know, going somewhere and landing somewhere is an order, right? Like you're tasked with this mission. You have to go land. You have to land there. That's not the case in civil aviation. Hmm. (laughs) You you look at the conditions and you think, yeah, you know what? We're not going to land there. The pilot has a lot more leeway in uh, deciding, you know, whether to divert or what the conditions are like. I never thought about that, but yeah. Yeah, we're going to think about that a little more in this incident. (laughs) (laughs) So TANS Peru Flight 204 was a domestic scheduled flight from Lima to Iquitos via Pucallpa. So it was going from Lima to Pucallpa to Iquitos. And it was operated with the Boeing 737 that was built in 1981. It was powered by two Pratt Whitney uh, engines. And it was actually leased to Tans Peru from a South African airline called uh, Safair. I'm, I'm not sure how to say that. Two months before the uh, accident. The captain was 45-year-old Octavio Perez Palma Gareta, who was a former military pilot, just like uh. you said. <laughs> who had, you see where this is going? <laughs> uh-huh. who, who had 5,867 flight hours, of which 3,763 hours were on the Boeing 737. The first officer was 37-year-old Jorge Luis Pinto Panta, who had 4,755 flight hours, 1,109 of them being on the Boeing 737. And there was also, remember I said there were three crew. There was also a trainee pilot on board, 38-year-old Gonzalo Chirinos Delgado. He had 2,700 flight hours, but only 61 of them were in the Boeing 737. That's not many at all. That's that's why he's a trainee. So the captain was seated in the left-hand seat. The trainee was seated in the right-hand seat like the first officer. And Uh the first officer was seated in the jump seat. Okay, so he's getting hands-on... Training. Right. It's a training flight. There's, you know, they're teaching him how to do it. There's a, he's sitting in the first officer seat, but, you know, he's being supervised by a training pilot as well as the actual first officer who's sitting behind him in the jump seat. TANS 204 departed Lima at about 1924 Universal time. That's 724 PM Universal on a scheduled 53 minute flight to Pucallpa. And then after it was supposed to do a stop there, then the plane was supposed to continue to Iquitos. Then on this flight, Tupacalpa had reached its cruising level of 33,000 feet at 7.41 universal time, 7.41 p.m., 174 miles from Pucalpa. Then at 7.52, the flight began its descent approach in visual conditions. And we've talked about this before. You know, visual conditions just means they can see outside. They're not strictly looking at their instruments to try to figure things out. Okay. The plane is equipped to do that? Yeah, yeah. Any, any passenger flight should be able to do uh, instrument conditions. You know, they don't, airlines don't want to cancel yeah. flights because there's clouds. Okay. Uh, so any pilot who's flying for an airline, any airliner should be able to fly in instrument conditions. But this particular day, at this time when they begin their descent, it's in visual conditions. They can see outside, it's fine. 
At 33,000 feet, the pilot contacted air traffic control for weather conditions. Six miles from the Pucallpa VOR, and that's just the um, navigation aid at Pucallpa. Six miles uh, from that VOR at 8.08 p.m. Universal Time, the aircraft reaches its authorized height of 1,500 feet above sea level, which corresponds to a height above ground of about 987 feet. So you can think of it just to kind of try to establish everything. They're about six miles from the airport. Mm-hmm. They are now have descended down to 1,500 feet is what their altimeter says. But that's really about 1,000 feet above the ground. Yeah. Okay. The aircraft was cleared for a visual descent. And when it reached its minimum height or MDA, minimum descent altitude, it encounters a meteorological phenomenon that does not allow it to maintain vertical or horizontal visibility. So at this point now, you know, they've descended. Everything was visual. They got low, 1,500 feet. And now they cannot see anymore. They've entered a, a storm. Just out of nowhere? It built very quickly. Like it was, mm. it was cloudy, you know, like the weather was unstable. And then just all, you know how that happens. It happens yeah. here sometimes where it's like, oh, it looks like, you know, they're, you know, it, everything's fine. It's sunny. And it's like, oh, those clouds look like they might be trouble. And then, you know, within a few minutes, a thunderstorm forms. Yeah. I'm just thinking about those videos. Have you ever seen like the moment a tornado just forms? I know this right. is a tornado, but like how quickly it can happen. Right. And then to make matters a little more complicated just to like you i know you might think like well why were they doing this what was going on pucalpa airport's kind of small they didn't have radar Mm. at that airport so they couldn't really give very detailed weather reports they had to rely on reports from other pilots who had just flown through the area to kind of like relay that information and this must be a really low storm too huh it's actually really big but at this point they are it's not like they're in the clouds here they are they, they're they unable to see because of torrential rain. Oh, okay. It's just like, it's just raining super hard and they can't see anything outside. Uh, and like I said earlier, they they haven't entered it at this point yet, but they're about to enter like a hail core where it's just oh. hailing really hard as well. That Like it's a really severe thunderstorm that they've entered. And I'm about to say that in a couple <laughs> sentences here. So air traffic control cannot clear the flight to land until the pilot confirms he can see the runway. At 8.08 p.m., they disconnect the autopilot that's maintaining their altitude. And 20 seconds later, they leave that minimum altitude and they begin descending and they cover that ground and, or I should say, they descend that altitude and lose it in 34 seconds at a rate of descent greater than 1,700 feet per minute. And the conditions, like I said, are heavy hail. And then they impact the trees at 8.08 and 51 seconds. Later, they come to rest on the ground at 8.08 and 57 seconds, this being the oh. final impact. So it seems less like they were looking for the, like the, the runway and they just like knocked out of the sky. Right, yeah. Yeah, so that's what it, at this point, yes, that's entirely what it sounds like. They had gotten low, they were at their minimum altitude, encountered a super severe storm with hail. The first officer was looking outside for the airport. They never saw it. And then they lost the altitude. They, had, they were only 1,000 feet above the ground, hit the jungle, uh, or hit the ground below and um, yeah, crashed. Yeah. So the plane impacted trees in a swampy forest about 3.8 miles from the threshold of runway uh, 02 at the airport in Pucallpa. The footprint left by the impact of the aircraft measured 0.8 miles long and 100 feet wide. So this is a huge wow, like impact site uh, yeah. where it, where it uh, hit the ground. And the aircraft wreckage was completely destroyed due to impact and post-impact fire. So the plane hit the swampy forest with a slightly nose-down attitude, turning slightly to the right. Huh. Which indicates that 
they were descending. You know, they yeah. had uh, their their angle of attack was down towards the ground. Did they think they saw the runway from the cockpit voice recorder? No, they 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 never really saw it. And at this point, they were still you know four um, almost four miles away in really heavy thunderstorms. So it would have probably been very unlikely that they saw it. Taking the passenger distribution list of the accident aircraft as a reference, the testimonies of some survivors, and configuration of the seats of the passenger cabin, it could be established that the technical crew, the crew, front attendant, and the front-seated passengers did not survive due to impact, fire, and smoke. If you look at the... I'll, I'll, I'll post this on our social media. They have a, There's a diagram showing where the people were seated on this flight and where everyone died and where the people uh, were seated that lived. And it's like the entire front of the plane did not make it. And that's why they're saying here that they, they didn't survive the impact, fire, and smoke. You know, the people who yeah. did survive were all in the back of the plane. That, it's still, that being said, a pretty high proportion, it seems, of yeah, survivors. Yeah, about half. I saw an interview with one of the survivors who was talking about how he got on the plane and he didn't really fit in his seat. He was seated at the front of the plane. And so the flight attendant moved him and told him he could go over and sit in the emergency exit row, which was further back in the plane. And he says, like, that one little decision saved his life, that he would not have survived if he, if he had been seated up in the front of the plane. And that moving further back helped him survive this, this accident. Those are always wild stories. Yeah. The evacuation of the surviving auxiliary crew members and passengers was carried out by the passengers and the crew themselves, who, once the aircraft stopped, proceeded to get off of the aircraft through the rear door on the right side and through a hole in the fuselage between rows 15 and 16 on the left side. Once outside the aircraft, the survivors gathered and began to move away from the area moments before the wreckage was engulfed in flames. So, you know, they, you know, they get out and they're, you know, they're, they're scared that the plane's going to explode or catch mm-hmm. fire. So, you know, they all get away. And, you know, it's not like it explodes necessarily, but the fuel does catch fire and, you know, burn most of the, of the wreckage. The rescue and firefighting personnel showed up, you know, with equipment, stretchers, and fire extinguishers, but they had to walk about three kilometers through the forest to get to the wreckage and the survivors. And they didn't reach the area until about 8.52 p.m. universal time. So at that point, the people had been, the, the wreck had been done for almost 45 minutes. It had been 43 minutes since impact before rescue showed up just because of kind of how remote it was. Yeah. That's a, I mean, that's a long trek if you have, especially if you have like uh, medical or, or firefighting gear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I can't imagine what it's like to have been one of the survivors who gets out. You're like, oh, we made it. And then you have to sit there. Remember, is there, there's still a bad storm going on oh, for yeah. 45 minutes. Oh, yeah. on. Yeah. Uh, waiting for, you know, help to arrive. And, you know, granted, they were in a forest. They, I don't, I, I didn't hear any firsthand accounts of this, but. Uh, you know, if there's big trees, I'm sure they could kind of like hide under them to not get pelted with the hail so badly. Yeah, but that just sounds, you're in a... It's miserable. <laughs> and it's a swamp. Yeah. So once the rescuers arrived to the area, they helped some of the wounded who were evacuating by their own means and searched for more survivors. At the time of the accident, the airport did not have an emergency plan that was approved, nor did it obey the International Civil Aviation Organization standards, which resulted in, you know, a delay in the response of the rescuers due to misinformation, lack of communication, and retransmission of accident information. So there was just like a communication breakdown between Mm. the rescue personnel and airport services. There was also difficulty for rescue vehicles to enter the area of the aircraft wreckage, which allowed the aircraft wreckage to be completely consumed by the spread of the fire. Like I said, they had to walk three kilometers, which is almost 
you know, two miles, like 1.8 miles to get there. So yeah. they couldn't get their firefighting vehicles there, you know, to help put out the, the fire. Uh, and it just resulted in more delay. Mm. Then on top of that, looters ransacked the wreckage. This greatly hindered the investigation because a bunch of key evidence went missing. They were on it then, I guess, the looters. Yeah, there could be people who were living closer in the area, yeah. you know. And uh, one of the things that went missing was the flight data recorder. Wow. Oh. So they, they took one of the, uh, the black boxes. And when, you know, investigators and, you know, the rescue personnel showed up, they tried their best to stop the looting, but there were just too many people. You know, mm-hmm. I, think, I think they tried to save what they could. You know, they set up some guards around the engines, you know, just to check the engines to make sure that they were functioning. But they really couldn't stop everyone else. Like, what are they going to do? Shoot these people, you know? And it's probably a ton of people because it is... I guess, close enough to populated regions. It's not like it's out on a mountain. Right. So like I said, the flight data recorder was missing. They couldn't find it at the site. And after an intense search and offering a reward of 500 US dollars, it was returned one week later by a resident who lived near the area of the accident. You know, we've talked about this before in other episodes where Mm -hmm. investigation committees will, you know, if they can't find what they're looking for, they'll you know, they'll offer rewards for critical components to be returned. And in this case, the flight data recorder was one of them. Yeah, it's worth the money just to, to get to it To know. Yeah. Not in this case, though. No? Oh. The unit was delivered without the external metal case, without the underwater locator beacon device, and with signs of having been subjected to high temperatures. Oh. Yeah, the armored part that contains the mechanism box was open, and the lid lacked the thermal protection element. The container of the mechanism was removed from the armored part, and the protective box of said mechanism was open. It showed signs of having been subjected to very high temperatures. There were no signs of impact or deformation in any of the protective boxes. Small incisions or scratch marks made after the unit was subjected to fire could be seen on the reels that carry the magnetic tape, and the bottom lane still shows the remains of the burned magnetic tape. So overall, that's just to say someone looted it, and then they kind of, they messed with the flight data recorder, Mm. either trying to take it apart or open it up, and it really damaged it. And due to the damage caused by the fire and the manipulation of the unit after it was found, no information could be extracted from the flight data recorder for the investigation. So it was worthless. They couldn't do anything. So that being said, the cockpit voice recorder was found on August 24th by the Peruvian Air Force among the wreckage and was handed over to the general directorate of civil aviation inspector who was at the scene and was later handed over to the CIAA representatives. The CIAA is the investigation committee in Peru. So all that to say, they found the cockpit voice recorder and it made its way to the uh, investigation committee. Yeah. <laughs> How big of an airport was this? Pucalpa? It's yeah. pretty small. Okay. It's it, Yeah, it's, it's not very big. I remember I said... They had no weather radar. They didn't yeah, have. That's why I was wondering. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't have radar to track the planes either. So it, it's, it's, it's kind of a small airport. There's no shortage of information available at our fingertips these days. It can be overwhelming and discouraging trying to keep up, but staying informed doesn't have to be a challenge. Smart News is here to streamline the way you consume media and get you straight to the stories that matter most through delivering critical and breaking news curated just for you. Smart News aggregates local and global stories from trusted publishers so you can stay informed on what matters most to you from local weather to trending TV shows all in one app. It scans stories, analyzes headlines, and partners with respected publishers to deliver information that helps you live smarter. You can say goodbye to information overload and hello to saving time and getting straight to the news that you care about. 
Plus, you can easily personalize your feed by following top publishers, adjusting notifications, and getting alerts in your area all in one app. Download Smart News for free today in the App Store to get news that matters most. That's S-M-A-R-T-N-E-W-S. Search for it on the Apple App Store for your iPhone or iPad or Google Play Store for Android users. A news app made smarter. Discover the all-in-one platform that delivers all the information you need. It's December in Texas, which means it's just about the perfect weather to be outside as much as possible without having to deal with blistering heat. It's a welcome relief, especially in Austin. There's so many places to explore around town. You can experience even more with electric e-bike right now for a limited time. You can save up to $250 on their holiday bundle with the purchase of any 3.0 light or premium electric e-bike plus 0% interest for six months, only available now through December 31st. I love my electric e-bike. I've had it for quite a while now. I can't remember what it's like not to have it. It's comfortable. It's fun. Uh, Let me tell you, I'm lazy. I don't like working out. I don't like pedaling. The electric part of the electric e-bike is amazing. It gets me all around town, wherever I want to go. I just expand the area. I'm able to explore more and more with the bike because it has such great range. It gets me there super quick. And best of all, you don't have to worry about parking it. You can ride it up to the front door of any place you're going to and lock it wherever they have their bike rack. Usually it's right by the front door. I got to take it to restaurants near me. I take it to convenience stores near me, grocery stores, you name it. I I find excuses to get on that electric e-bike and go explore somewhere. And one of the best parts is that electric e-bikes designs every bike with durability and convenience in mind. Each bike is foldable. Uh, You can fit it in your car if you want. They all ship free, fully assembled. You just take it out of the box and you unfold it and that's it. You're done. You'll be on the road in no time. Each electric e-bike includes a powerful removable battery, a bright LCD display, seven-speed gearing, and five levels of pedal assist to power your ride. That's that's my favorite part. With over 200,000 dedicated riders on the road so far, electric e-bikes truly have fantastic features and quality at an unbeatable price. Start your next adventure with Electric XP 3.0 today. Order now, save up to $250 with a special holiday bundle and 0% interest for six months. Visit electricebikes.com to learn more. That's L-E-C-T-R-I-C-E-Bikes.com. Seriously, go, go check it out right now. Just take a look. Why not? Take a look. Looking free. There's nothing quite like the feeling of gathering around a warm fire on a cool evening and a smokeless fire pit from Solo Stove makes your outdoor moments even more memorable because instead of having to constantly dodge campfire fumes, you can sit back, relax, and actually, you know, enjoy the fire. And during Solo Stove's holiday event sale, you get a great deal on a Solo Stove fire pit. Uh, I've had my Solo Stove for like a year, maybe a little over a year now at this point. I think I had it, yeah. And uh, this it's the perfect time of year to be using it here where I am in Texas. Uh, you can light it up super, it lights super quick, super easy to use. And the smokeless design is absolutely great. Uh, you don't feel like the fire's watching you trying to throw smoke at you the entire time. It's absolutely awesome to try to, to be able to enjoy the backyard and uh, just hang out, you know, uh, with loved ones, with pets, and just enjoy the cooler weather. Uh, you can upgrade your backyard with the Solo Stove Fire Pit, create story-worthy moments without all the fireside fumes. Uh, stainless steel construction is designed to regulate airflow and burn more efficiently. There's so little smoke, you'll wonder how there's so much fire. It's the perfect catalyst for getting outside and spending more time with family and friends. Build lasting memories around a Solo Stove Fire Pit. Let the gifting begins. Shop Solo Stove's holiday event sale for huge site-wide savings and get $10 off with promo code BLACKBOXDOWN plus a lifetime warranty and free 30-day returns. Get an extra $10 off holiday deals at solostove.com, promo code BLACKBOXDOWN. So according to the dialogue held between the pilot in command and the co-pilot in the CVR recording before the start of the approach, the crew is aware of unfavorable weather conditions and they consider continuing. At about 20 miles away, they comment doubtfully on the possibility of alternating. However, in subsequent dialogue, in the initial phase of the final approach, these crew members demonstrate their intention to continue their course for the final approach and descend towards the airport area. 
At no time do they mention anything that indicates any difficulty or problems in the aircraft with the engines, instruments, or flight controls. So there is evidence of them being like, hey, I don't know. You know, it looks like the weather's getting worse. Yeah. You know, should we, all, should we go to an alternate? And no, they decide to, uh, to continue with the flight. Remember how I said that there were three pilots in the cockpit because this was a training yeah. flight for uh, one of the first officers? Yeah. Well, the actual experienced first officer left the cabin. He was not in the cockpit. What? I thought he was in the, the, the little side seater thing. The jump seat? Yeah. yeah. The seat belt wasn't working oh in the jump God. seat. Oh, my God. So he left and went and sat in the cabin with the passengers, which doesn't make sense if you're training someone. It's in violation of the rules that say he needs to be present during a yeah. training session. So at the pivotal moment of descent, the trainee became the first officer as the commanding pilot took control of the plane and confusion set in as to who was monitoring the flight equipment and who was meant to monitor the visuals out the window. So, Oh, no. The, yeah, the training first officer left. The, uh. So that leaves the captain and the trainee the trainee is the one flying the plane. Things get bad. The captain takes over, and but there's no clear exchange of duties. Like who should be oh, doing what? No. The trainee, he's new, so he doesn't automatically know what to do. The captain doesn't delegate to him because he's used to flying. You know, he's not the the the, the training yeah. first officer should be the one telling him what to do, or should be the one taking over at this point. They were cool with him just like leaving. That yeah yeah. So this leads to a lack of situational awareness and negligence of safety regulations, which contribute to this fatal error. Mm. So yeah, you're, you're starting to see like all the little things that are yeah. adding up to, to causing uh, this incident or this accident. See, I almost did it again. <laughs> so the pilot in command held a double position at the time of the accident, instructor and operations manager of the TANS company. This could be considered a limitation to the usual performance contributing to the causes that originate the human error, just kind of, Double duty, extra work. Yeah. Maybe a little uh, overtaxed. So the cockpit voice recorder transcript shows that the pilot at the controls was Mr. Chirinos, who's conducting his training with the advice of Mr. Perez Palma, the instructor pilot. At the critical moment, a positive transfer of controls cannot be verified, which is clear that both are looking for visual conditions, neglecting to observe their flight instruments to maintain the prescribed safe minimums, Losing vertical situational awareness, inadvertently descending with the non-stabilized aircraft, oh. nor properly configured for the landing maneuver and impacting the terrain. So the new guy's flying. The captain says, hey, why don't I take over? He takes over flying. And then the first officer does not transition to just looking at the instruments and monitoring them. Yeah. The, cap the, the captain actually tells him, remember look, I, I said yeah, it earlier, said, look, for look for the airport. Oh, no. And then they're both looking for the airport. They don't realize they're dropping a thousand feet. Right. And, and what they didn't know at the time, because they couldn't see visually, the storm was really bad. What they didn't realize is when the hail was impacting the plane, it had broken their windows. What? Yeah, th that's how bad the hail was. And I, I'm sure you've probably seen like broken, like not, you know, not like a, a window at your home, which, you know, shatters and glass goes everywhere, but it like breaks it and leaves it looking like frosted. You know, you ever seen that kind of glass? Almost like a, a like a car windshield. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's and they you have to put them in like lower windows or uh, windows by doors and stuff. What do right. they call it? Um, uh, yeah, that's um, that's not. It's like tempered glass. It's tempered, tempered glass. Tempered. Yeah, yeah. Uh, where so they couldn't tell, but they really couldn't use the windows anymore. They were all, I, I'm gonna say frosted over, but they weren't. It was not frost. It's like they. They had become opaque, right? The They'd cockpit? just been damaged. Right. So they're using a visual approach with no visuals. Right. They can't At see all. outside. 
Right. Exactly. And, and why didn't they transition to like flying th- through instruments? So that's a, how can I say this? So I think what they should have done, this is, you know, like mm-hmm. armchair quarterbacking, right? They should have, when, you know, that happens, they should have climbed and escaped. Mm-hmm. It's not a matter at that point, you're so low, it's, it's not a matter of transitioning to an instrument approach. At that point, you're like, you know what? This isn't going to work. We need to either, we need to get out of here. We need to go circle or we need to divert to another airport. You're so low there, there's no transitioning from one approach to another. But there, there was no, that wasn't even an option of them like looking at instruments? I mean, they can look at instruments. They, and in fact, they should have. Been. Yeah, the yeah. captain should have been flying and the first officer should have taken over the role of looking down at the instruments and maintaining and giving call-outs for altitude, airspeed, um, you know, position. And occasion, occasionally looking out to look for the airport. But primary duty should be looking at those instruments. But yeah, I guess if you can't see out the windows anyway, you can't do a visual approach. So you shouldn't be landing if you're doing it. Exactly. So exactly. What were they looking for? I mean, they, they were probably looking for the lights uh, of the airport. Uh. So, I mean, the, the, and here, the problem is we, we, we've kind of talked around some of these things in the past, and I don't know the specifics about Peruvian aviation or what they're required, but, you know, if you're that low to the ground, at minimum for, you know, visual purposes, you would want like three miles of visibility, and they did not have that. So there's no way they, they, they mm. could have been doing a visual approach uh, at this point. Anyway, there's there's a lot of other subtlety to that. I'm not, I'm not, we're not going to get into all of that, but all that's to say they shouldn't have put themselves in this position to begin with. And that, you know, I'm, you can't say this definitively, but that kind of plays back to something we said earlier. That's what happens when you have someone approaching this as a mission hmm. where it's like they need to land, they need to get there. You know, when they were 20 miles away and they saw that, the, when they first had that discussion 20 miles away and they were talking about how the weather was getting worse, at that point, they should have they should have started thinking, hey, maybe we should enter a holding pattern. We should go somewhere yeah. else. We should, you know, we should wait this out. That's the time when you make those decisions, not when you're a thousand feet above the ground in the thick of it. Or even whenever they started, like, when they were getting closer and the weather just got, they entered the storm and it was right. hailing. That's like, oh, wait, let's circle around. Right. You know, e- even in my flight training, I've encountered situations like that with my instructor where, you know, we're, we're flying and then like a storm pops up over the Austin airport. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we, we, you know, we're dodging rain, we're dodging bad weather, kind of circling and talking it over. Like, Hey, are we gonna have to land somewhere else? Are we going to wait for this rain? Let's look at our fuel. Let's look at our altitude, you know? Yeah. And then, you know, it clears up and it's like, okay, now we can, you know, get in there and land. You don't dive in, <laughs> get into it and then be like, okay, what are we going to do now? It's like, no, you should be talking about this ahead of time. It's not a movie. <laughs> right. So in this accident, you know, the pilot shows excessive self-confidence by taking these unnecessary risks. They then commits an error in judgment, demonstrates poor pre-flight planning, as well as during the flight by not noticing the imminent danger and avoiding adverse conditions. So, you know, it's just like being a little too cocky, a little too self-confident leads to things like this. Yeah. In aviation, there's like these checks a pilot needs to do on themselves and like pitfalls that they can fall into that can lead to accidents. And, uh, you know, some of them include like thinking you're invulnerable or like a macho attitude, thinking that, you know, you're able to do these things. And uh, these are like the human factors that go into aviation that need to be checked and to be thought about. And it's obviously like, this is the reason why. We could also consider as a contributing human factor, 
the violation of flight discipline by violating the operating regulations dictated in the uh, MGO on operations in adverse conditions. The MGO is like the operations manual. In adverse conditions by not having maintained the expected and regulated minimums for a VFR operation. That's what I mentioned earlier, three miles of visibility. As regulated by uh, NODAM in force up to date of the event. So it's also just saying, this is just to say, kind of like what I was saying just a few seconds ago, there's also the human factor that goes into this by the pilot ignoring the operations manual, ignoring the required minimums for this kind of yeah. flight mm. uh, and just proceeding with this flight anyway. That's why I didn't quite know how to answer your question earlier about like, why can't they transition to an instrument approach? It's like, they shouldn't have to. They shouldn't be yeah. in that position in the first place. And then you factor in the, the training guy taking over as first officer. Right. And then also bad crew resource management. Right. Not clearly dictating what responsibilities are, not tra- not having that positive transition of controls. Like normally when one pilot transitions controls to another, it's like a three-way exchange. So it's like, if I was the pilot and you uh-huh. were the first officer, Chris, I would say you have the controls. Then you would reply, I have the controls. And then I would say again, you have the controls. Or if I take over, I would say, I have the controls. You would say, you have the controls. And then I would say, I have the controls. It's like, very clear. There, it needs to be said three mm-hmm. times. So uh, everyone understands. Right. That way you know definitively who has it and who's taking over. And then this is kind of a side note. I, I didn't know how to work this in to when we were talking about it. On the cockpit voice recorder, the investigators noticed that as things were getting worse and you know as the flight was progressing, that the first officer in training began whistling as he was flying the plane. What? Yeah, like whistling to himself, like a little tune. And they said that based on previous accidents that they had investigated, they knew that that indicated he was probably nervous and felt in, like he was in over his head. That they've, that they've noticed this before on previous in, uh, accidents and incidents. Like, uh, like people whistle whenever they're over their head. Right. Whenever they get nervous or stressed out, they just like inadvertently kind of start whistling a tune. To like calm themselves to try and... Right. Mm. Also, another thing I didn't, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to go ahead and work this all in here while we're okay. kind of in a break. <laughs> another thing I didn't know how, where to mention it was that, Tan, this, you know, we're, we're talking about Tan's Flight 204. This was their fifth fatal crash in 13 years. Whoa. And it was their sixth crash overall. That's a lot. That's a lot, Chris. The previous one was only 19 months before this, like a year and a half before this. And 46 people died on that one. So... There was obvious problems here. And uh, spoiler for later, uh, Tans no longer exists. Uh, this, uh, this was pretty much it for them. It, it's just an awful safety culture that had gone on with Tans. Anyway, so going back to the flight and talking about the human factor as far as the flight, the pilots channeled their attention in search for visual conditions, trying to locate the runway, neglecting the flight and abandoning the safe separation level prescribed by regulations. So it's kind of the same member. The, the captain told the first officer to look outside for the runway. And they were both kind of preoccupied on that, even though they couldn't see. And as a result of this, they lose spatial situational awareness and do not control the energy of the aircraft to perform or attempt the proposed maneuver safely. Conditions departing from Lima were operable. However, there was a developing front in the vicinity of Pucallpa. And at the time of the accident, the front was over the area of Pucallpa airport with estimated cloud tops at 45,000 feet, developing an unforeseen, unusual, and large-scale meteorological phenomenon with heavy precipitation, strong winds, and hail. So 
they knew that there was a front in the area when they took off. And then it was just one of those things where all of a sudden it developed very rapidly into a severe thunderstorm. Mm. According to the cockpit voice recorder transcript, the technical crew of the flight was aware of the meteorological phenomenon prior to the flight. Likewise, according to the dispatch release sheet for the flight, the crew had received information related to the weather reports, notice to airmen, and forecasts. And everything was normal until 18 minutes after takeoff when they reached the assigned cruising level of 33,000 feet. At that time, at 7.52 p.m., they detected rain on the radar and learned of the bad weather through the Pucalpa Tower, which informed them of the presence of cumulonimbus clouds in the southern quadrant of the station, estimated visibility to the south of one kilometer, and middle with a dust storm. So cumulonimbus clouds are just like big storm clouds. Yeah. So the tower starting, at this point when they're cruising altitude, the tower starting to let them know that there's bad weather moving in. And despite this, they do not take preventative measures, taking into account that the pilot in command is also a flight instructor. At 8.04 and 54 seconds, the crew is aware of the adverse conditions in which they are flying. The instructor pilot ordering the pilot in instruction to stay below the Nimbus clouds, contravening the regulations of the MGO, since the general policy in this regard is to not operate through developed thunderstorms, nor to fly below the base of the storm, and do circumnavigate or fly over them if possible. This type of storm should be avoided at least 20 nautical miles away. So... The operating handbook says not to do this. Like they violated <laughs> multiple things. That like they flew under the storm and they way closer to it. You know, they they need to avoid it and if possible go around it or fly over it. And they did the exact opposite. They went straight through it and under it. Which is bad training. Also, if he's, yeah, training, so, uh, if he's training this guy, he should he's be, training you know, him to do the wrong things. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, you're just you're just Continuing a bad cycle or bad history. Right. So there are, so I'm going to go ahead and pull some items from the MGO. Remember I said the MGO, it's the operations manual. Okay. That's some specific items from that MGO that they violated. And this is, again, from the, from the manual. If the cloud base is below 3,000 feet, do not plan to fly under a cold front or prefrontal thunderstorms. If it is necessary to fly Ding. through instrument thunderstorms, do not fly below 4,000 feet above ground. Fly through intense thunderstorms along a cold front. It should never be attempted. Never try to fly under this type of thunderstorm. It's like over and over. There's one more here. Do not take off, initiate an approach or landing in adverse weather conditions at a departure or arrival aerodrome. Ding. Yep. It's just, it's, it's mind boggling. And, and again, I don't want to say it's necessarily because of the military history of this airline or because the pilot was in the military, because there's plenty of fine pilots from the military. Uh It's just maybe a mindset throughout the culture of the airline where they felt like they had to complete the flight and they had to get there. Mm. And like like I said, there are tons of pilots who enter, you know, passenger service having had a history in the military. And that's, it's not a problem. I'm just saying in this particular case, it may have been. Yeah. Is there anything in like, more information about that, like the behavior that caused all these accidents at this airport was, were they attributable in some way or is it more just, I don't know. I don't say speculation, but I will. Yeah. Speculation is not the right word. Uh, I would say maybe you can infer it. Yeah. Okay. I would say yes, because remember I said they had six crashes in 13 years. Mm -hmm. Four of those were before 1999 when it was still part of the air force. Oh, Okay. So I'm going to say yes. This was only their second one after transitioning out and no longer being part of the Air Force. 
So they had a bad history as an Air Force base. That seems like a lot, even for Air Force Base. It's not like they were at war, right? Right. Well, yeah. And, you know, it's, it's, they were just operated by the Air Force. It's not like, you know, they were still running like passenger service and search and rescue stuff. So it's not like they were, I don't know, transporting troops or, you know, they weren't carrying out military operations with these crashes. These were, they were carrying out civilian operations. An interesting side note. I'm, I'm about to get to the conclusions here. An interesting side note, again, this is another thing I couldn't figure out how to, how to work into the, uh, into the actual episode, was this one was pretty cut and dry from the beginning, that there was no mystery about what happened. It was very easy to tell because they had the cockpit voice recorder. They could see what was going on. They, this plane was flying somewhere. It clearly shouldn't have been by any operations manual. But, you know, the, the investigators still go through the process of figuring out, was there a mechanical failure? Did something else happen? And I thought this part was interesting. You know, they... Like I said, they did have guards protecting the engines to see, you know, what the engines were doing at the time of the crash. And, you know, when they investigate the engines, they found plant matter in the internal turbines of the engine. And what that tells them is that the engines were still spinning and operating when it impacted the ground. If they weren't spinning, Uh the plant matter wouldn't have gotten ingested inside so as deep as it did. I love little tidbits like that. (laughs) And what what, what, what can else, I mean, does that mean... So... They, like because the, you would think like well why did they fall out of the air did their engines fail okay it's like oh, oh yeah, no, yeah yeah okay. no of course yeah, not their, their engines, engines were, working. were working because they were plant mad okay right the little clues right it's like and, ah like <laughs> sorry <laughs> what do you have an idea I'm, no no I'm just Im- Im- imagining this is not I'm sure not how it is but like like Sherlock and and Watson on <laughs> observing the and Sherlock's Watson my dear my dear Watson could you see you know the plant matter in the engine clearly denotes that. <laughs> <Just> yeah. Like, <laughs> well, and since they didn't have a flight data recorder, that's why they have to look at a lot of this stuff because they don't know what was happening. And in fact, they did. They had to do like an audio spectrum analysis on the cockpit voice recorder to try to listen to the engines. You know, so they do that thing where they have the audio file, then they isolate out, you know, the people talking, they isolate out all the other sounds and just try to isolate down to the engines to listen to see if they were operating correctly Mm. and to also listen to see if, you know, there was a change in the amount of thrust that they were outputting during the time of the accident. And there wasn't, they were, they could hear it operating normally. If anything, they were a little critical of the fact that more power was never added. Mm. Like they were at like, you know, cruising along. And when they tried to, well, there, there was never like any increase in thrust to try to gain altitude or to escape out, you know, it was just, which just showed that they were, preoccupied and committed to what they were doing. And maybe also neither pilot at the time knew who should be operating the the throttle. Anyway, conclusions. The Accident Investigation Commission of the Ministry of Transport and Communications determines the probable cause of the accident as follows. The decision of the technical crew to continue with the final approach and landing towards the Pucallpa Airport in very severe weather conditions. The decision of the technical crew to carry out the non-stabilized descent and not to act to stop the abrupt descent towards the ground in descent rates greater than 1,500 feet per minute, which activates the ground proximity warning system. There's a lot of talk about this. When you're coming in to land, you need to have what they call a stabilized approach where, you know, you're very, it's like what what the name says, you're very stable. You have a very gradual, safe descent rate and, you know, you're not going too fast and everything's, you know, in position, everything's deployed properly. You know, you're stable. If anything's not stable, you don't make your landing, you go around, you know, you... You uh, climb, escape the area, and give it another shot. So descent rate, 1,500 feet per minute, 
or greater, they were doing, I think, 15 or 1,700 feet per minute. That's not stabilized. The decision of the technical crew not to avoid the storm, not to request to land on the other airport runway, or to switch to the nearest airport until weather conditions improve. They were just committed to getting there. The technical crew's decision to penetrate the storm, having been detected on the aircraft's weather radar approximately 190 miles in advance. So they saw the storm, you know, in the cockpit mm. well in advance, and they knew that what they were going towards. And the loss of horizontal and vertical visibility of the technical crew when penetrating the core of the storm, the severe hailstorm caused... <laughs> okay, this report's translated. Okay. You know, the report was in Spanish. Uh, it's translated to English. So there's, <laughs> there's a, a, a verbification of a word here that I don't think exists in English. So I'm going to try to talk around it. Well, could you just, just for, you know, could you just say it? So I, I don't have the Spanish word in front of me, uh-huh. uh, but I, so I'll, I'll give you the, the English verbified word, uh-huh. opaciation. So like to cause to become opaque. opaque. So it's probably talking about the windows. Right. The severe hailstorm caused the windows to become opaque <laughs> on the front windows of the aircraft and consequently the total loss of situational awareness. Uh, and then there's a few contributing causes here. Incomplete technical crew in the cockpit. The titular co-pilot, Mr. Jorge Luis Pinto Panta, was sitting in the passenger cabin. Like I said, the yeah. actual first officer wasn't even in the cockpit. Failure to comply with the uh, notice to airmen uh, or notice to air mission of July 31st, 2005, which indicated operations restricted to VFR at the Pucalpa Airport, of which it was supposedly alerted by the briefing received prior to the flight and the briefing form of the TANS company. So they were restricted to only visual approaches at this airport. There were no instrument approaches at this airport. So when you asked earlier, couldn't they switch to an instrument approach? They can look at their instruments, but there is no charted visual approach at that time for that airport. And the the reason for that, well, I don't know the reason for this specifically, but normally when you have an instrument approach, it tells you like what points to hit in the air, what altitudes to be at. If there's a glide slope, you know, you can have a precision or a non-precision approach. There's a lot of things that go into that. And, They didn't have that, so that's why they had to do visual approaches, and it was impossible at this time. The lack of airmanship on the part of the technical crew, being airmanship uh, a concept of operational safety defined as the measure of knowledge that the pilot has of his aircraft, his crew, and his environment, and his own abilities. The lack of knowledge on the part of the air traffic controller of the Pucalpa control tower to identify the risky situation that configured the unusual meteorological phenomenon of a cold front with intense hail precipitation in the vicinity of the airport. That's probably just saying the air traffic controller should have maybe raised more alarms about how bad the weather was. But again, they had no weather radar. I mean, this is just kind of a small airport. And it happened, it happened, you even described it as a phenomenon. Right. But, you know, I guess they could, they could see the weather, you know, it wasn't that far from the airport. They should have raised the red flag a little more. There was also another finding here that at the time there was air traffic control could not suspend operations at an airport in Peru. So even though air traffic control knew the weather was bad, they could not close the airport because of regulations in Peru at the time. Hmm. Partial, and then uh, partial compliance and poor dissemination of the recommendations of the investigation into the accident involving the Fokker F-28 MK-1000 aircraft operated by TANS, which occurred on January 9th, 2003. So this is, <laughs> I, I didn't want to get into this. Uh-huh. Remember I said there was uh, another accident a year and a half before this one? That accident a year and a half before was very similar to this one. And oh. this, yeah, this point here is saying that they didn't listen to the recommendations from the last crash. And then oh. this one happened. 
And that's what they're talking about here. This the previous crash that had occurred. It's like you, we already told you this, right? Like you're still doing the same. You're still having the same problems, and people are dying because of it. And then there's just a a few conclusions here from the CIAA. The CIA determines the likely cause of the accident is as follows, and it's kind of the same. These are just two different conclusions or two different sets of conclusions. The decision of the flight crew to continue the final approach and landing at the airport of Pucallpa in severe weather. The decision of the flight crew to descend unstabilized and not act to stop the steep descent to ground at a descent rate of above 1,500 feet per minute, which is what triggered the GPWS. The decision of the flight crew not to avoid the storm, not choosing to conduct a landing on the other runway or divert to the nearest airport until weather conditions improved. The decision of the flight crew to penetrate the storm, it having been detected on a weather radar aircraft approximately 190 miles in advance and the loss of the horizontal and vertical visibility of the flight crew while penetrating the core of the storm. Severe hail causes obscuration of the front windows of the aircraft and total loss of situational awareness. Obscuration, that's the word. That instead of uh, opaciation. Obscuration. At least at least they're like sciencey sounding words. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like if you were adamant that that was a word, I'd be like, all right. <laughs> it sounds right. But yeah, that's it. Tans 204. It's 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 hard to say. Like, it's a hard one to describe, just because they shouldn't have been where they were in yeah. the first place. It's like what could have been avoided. Like a lot. They, should, they yeah, they just should have <laughs> gone to a different airport, or they just should have circled and waited for the weather to clear. It's just baffling the decision to try to attempt this land. And that's not to say planes can't land in severe thunderstorms, but there are thresholds for it. And this was you know, and there was no instrument equipment at this airport like normally yeah, when yeah. when you're landing in bad weather it's like oh well you know we can do an instrument approach there's a glide slope there's a localizer there's mm-hmm. something there, there was none of that at this airport they were just like all right let's fly through a terrible hailstorm and look for the airport like no yeah how much longer did this airport last after you mean this? the airline sorry airline yeah they ceased operations in 2006 and this particular incident was in august of 2005 Okay, so so it was pretty quick mm-hmm. after that. It was a uh, in January of two thousand six that their license was suspended by the Peruvian government. So, yeah, so probably because as this was investigated, and then they looked at their history and records, and right, and then they were like, "This yeah. this airline should not be operating." Yeah, especially since they're like, "You, we already told you these things. Y'all didn't learn." Right, and yeah, it's a, there's there's no room for that in aviation. Yeah. That's the whole point. I mean, that's the crux of why we do this podcast is what are the lessons learned and what was implemented? You know, what changed as a result to make sure this doesn't happen again? Well, they learned airline. lessons. <laughs> well, they were they were told what happened. They didn't learn anything. They did it again. It's like, you know what? You can't fly anymore. Don't do not do this. You're out of the game. You're, you're out. All right, but that's it. That's Tons 204. We'll be back uh, next week with another episode. Yeah. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Tell someone, tell your oldest friend about this podcast. An old friend. Also, if you have any Peruvian friends. Yeah. Oh, oh, I used to have a Peruvian friend. Did you? Yeah. In in uh in college, my uh, you know, uh, Zach Hanner. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. His his he had a, a roommate uh that was like a random assigned roommate, and he was a Peruvian. His name was Gaston. Look him up and find him. I to, will to, to send Gaston, him Gaston, I haven't down. talked to you in fifteen years, but I gotta tell you about a podcast. <laughs> and we can well, let's go. There's that Peruvian restaurant by the office. Let's go, uh, let's go have lunch. Yeah. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Bye.